6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. The writer says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Unbelief is sin. Deuteronomy 9, 24, we saw it there. In departing from the living God. Departing. Aphistomai. To cause, to withdraw, to remove, to stand off, to stand aloof, to desert, withdraw from one, to fall away, to become faithless. That's what aphistomai means. Is that what we're guilty of? Let's hope not, but let's understand what we're talking about here. Departing from the living God. Living God. That's the Father in Matthew 16. It's the Son in 1 Timothy 4. It's the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 6. It's fascinating that that term in the, in the Word of God is applied to the Father in one case, the Son in another, and the Holy Spirit. Again, you've got the Trinity taken for granted in this structure. And the living God dwells in you. So you want to understand what that's all about. I won't take the time here. We'll keep moving. I want you to be sensitive, though, through to Jewish exegetical principles. We generally, we're dealing here with a Jewish mind speaking to Jewish readers. And the author has a pattern of extended expositions from the Old Testament. And that's a, pat, a style that is rare in the New Testament. But it's very common in the rabbinical mind. Okay? The author sought to reorient Old Testament texts to the situation by using common rabbinical practices without violating or altering their actual sense to their original audience. In other words, they, they, the writer takes subtle liberties with the quotes that he takes from the Old Testament to make his point. I'll, sh I'll show you what I mean by that. Hillel has a, an exegetical rule called the Gezer Shawa, a verbal analogy. And where this happens, he appeals to the rest of Genesis 2, verse 2, in order to explain the rest in Psalm 95. We're going to discover when we get into that part of it next time that the rest of God is resting in Genesis chapter 2 is used idiomatically for the rest that he's alluded to in Psalm 95. The author also followed the Midrashic practice of selectively editing his citation of Psalm 95. By changing the demonstrative pronoun from that generation to this generation, there's a slight subtle, there's a subtle change in the Greek, he's able to apply more forcefully the warning of Psalm 95 to the reader. Instead of saying that generation, he's, he took that liberty to rhetorically make the point that applies to us as well. Follow me? That's a, that's a typical rabbinical twist. By changing the pronoun of that generation, meaning this generation. And this produces a rhetorical effect without altering the meaning of the original verse. Another example of the author repeated use of today in Psalm 95.7 to modernize the Old Testament text and to stress the urgency of its warning to his audience. Both these things don't do violence to the text. They're ways of 
like underlining, making, making the point. Okay, let's move on. Uh, verse 13, to exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. The Hebrew word is parakleo. parakleo. The noun version is paraclete. We're familiar with that one. This is the verb form. The Holy Spirit has given the term paraclete as a noun in John 14, 6, 16. The word here, though, is used as a noun. That means we should exhort. Come alongside to encourage. Now, we should exhort one another daily while it is, call, while it is called today. Does this mean that any of us could fall away? Are we vulnerable? Boy, I say we are. That's what the, that's what the writer's all concerned about. Today means right now. It means why you still have opportunity. Everyone in this room have an opportunity to prevent losing our inheritance. That's what he's saying. Now, there's two different views that emerged through the centuries. Calvinism is one. All true, true believers will persevere to the end. So perseverance turns out to be the final test of reality. This is sometimes what some people call this the experimental predestinarian approach. Yes, you're predestined, but you won't find out if you were until the end. That's not very helpful. It effectively denies the assurance of salvation even to the Calvinists. Proof is always in the future for the Calvinist. The Armenian has the opposite point of view. Their justification can be lost. Believers are in danger of losing their salvation as a result of sinful behavior in their mind. So therefore, the believer's eternal security rests in Christ's work and the individual's decision to continue in the faith and not fall away. Works play a key role in retaining salvation. So they're both, actually, both views, although they're opposites, are very similar. Both views acknowledge that Christ's completed work is essential. Both acknowledge the importance of works in the life of the believer. And although they're directly opposed, Calvinists or Arminians, they both come dangerously close to the Roman Catholic view that salvation is a matter of works, as it means. So we have two basic divisions, Calvinism, eternal security, that's through the, you know, the predestination argument, and Arminians who believe that you have to persevere to stay saved. Both of these are right in what they assert, and both of these are wrong in what they deny. There is a third view that's overlooked by most students. And yet that's the view in the Scripture for the overcomers who have eternal security in the sense of being justified, but they're concerned about... The, they, they draw a distinction between entering heaven and inheriting heaven. You can enter a hotel, doesn't mean you've inherited it. And there's a great variation of the rewards among the believers. You can be eternally secure in the sense that you're justified, but the difference is, is what you get at the judgment seat of Christ. And so... That's why there's another dimension to sin, and that's the operative aspect of it. Sin deceives. So we should exhort one another daily, what is called today, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives. Sin leads us to appetites we shouldn't have, cravings, goals, ambitions, because they compete with our affection for Jesus Christ. That sort of re redefines sin, by the way. Anything that deviates you from your affection for Christ is, is sin. The completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, by which you get your justification, does not constitute a license to sin, obviously. The deceitfulness of sin, all through the Scripture. One of the aspects of sin is the judicial aspect, that's what we usually talk about, has been taken care of you at Calvary. Sin was judged there. 
Your sins were nailed to the cross. No longer do your sins stand between you and God. You have been justified, is the term that the Epistle of Romans would deal with. But there are two sides to that cross. You have the privilege of access to Him, and He has the benefit of fellowship with you. He's benefited also. It gives Him a way to be able to deal with you without being encumbered by your unrighteousness. That's why uh, Hal Lindsey likes to use the acronym for the book of Romans. God's riches at Christ's expense. If you can lose your salvation, God loses more than you do. He loses His good name. But also, at Christ's expense, He now has the ability to fellowship with us. Wow. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast to Him. Partakers. There's that word again. Metakoi. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. That if is critically important conditional. What? must we hold steadfast to the end? Ah, that's the question. He continues, While it is said today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That's a quote, of course, from the, of the song we talked about. The penalty for hardening your heart can be seen in the example of the wilderness wanderings, a 40-year spiritual detour. What happened to them? At Kadesh Barnea, they get there, Upon the report of the spies, you remember they sent out the 12 spies, right? Ten came back saying, they're too big for us, right? I love J. Vernon McGee's reaction to that, to Numbers 13. He says, now I know why I don't trust committees. Because <laughs> the majority was wrong, right? Israel failed because they listened to the ten. The entire generation, except for the two that were faithful, Joshua and Caleb, they passed away before they could enter the land. The failure was Numbers 13. The verdict came in Numbers 14. Let's take a look at Numbers 13. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go against... This is the report of the ten. We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we had gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And by the way, they were there how long? Forty days. So they're going to get a year for a day before this is over. And there we saw giants, the sons of Anak, which came of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So we were in their sight. Now it's easy for us with 2020 hindsight to be critical of these 10 guys. They went there, scouted it out. What did they see? The sons of Anak were about what? 13 feet, 6 inches? They were big dudes. In fact, the word in Numbers 13.33 is the Nephilim. Now before you get too hard on these guys, let's understand what they were up against. Back in Genesis chapter 6, you may recall from our study in Genesis, came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, that daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the word there, sons of God, Benihah Elohim, is a term that's used in the Old Testament of angels, direct creations of God. And uh, they're angels. 
in, in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, 38, 7. In Luke, we find the same equivalent term in Luke 20. The book of Enoch, which is not inspired, but is a, is a reliable guide on grammar and, uh, um, and uh, vocabulary of the period, uh, uses, this, uses it always of angels. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, makes it very clear that the Badai HaElohim are angels. There were Nephilim in the earth in those days, and also after that, Nephilim. They were obviously before the flood of Noah, that's what gave rise to the flood of Noah. You all may remember that from your study of the book of Genesis. But what everybody misses, it didn't happen just then, also after that. And, 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 and apparently, when in Genesis 15 and 17, when God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be away for 400 years and then come back to the land, Satan realized he had four centuries to lay down a minefield. And he had more of the same kind of shenanigans that apparently gave rise to, ne the, to Nephilim in the land of Canaan. And that's why Joshua was instructed to wipe out every man, woman, and child of four key tribes. Because you have the same problem there that Noah was facing, namely a gene pool problem. So there's more to that. You can study on your own. But uh, So the Nephilim, the fallen ones is what it means in the Hebrew. The Nephal from to be cast down, to fall away or desert. And out of them came the Hagiburim, the mighty ones. In the Septuagint, the Greek of that, gigantes is the term that is transliterated as giants. Now they happen to be giants, but that's not what the word really means. It comes from gigas, which means earthborn. Earthborn. And so, there, so those are these strange creatures. Well, okay. So the, the ten uh, guys talk Israel out of going into the land. They're too big for us. We can't handle it. We're, you just brought us here to have our children die. And God says, no, you got that backwards. You're the guys who are going to die. Your children are going to the land. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, saying, this is now we're going to Numbers 14, the next chapter. How long shall I bear with this evil generation, which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that are numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which were murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear unto you to dwell therein, save Caleb and the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Now the two faithful guys accepted. They said, you're, you're, our children are going to die in the wilderness. No, you got it backwards. You're going to die. Your children are going to die. He's using their own words against him there. But your little ones which he said should be a prey, them will I bring in. And they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years. And bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. Ooh. After the number of your days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise." I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Were they saved? Yes. Did they inherit? No. And the men which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him, 
by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report from the land died by the plague before the Lord. So that group of ten had it right then. But their children had to wait for their, you know, all the rest of the parents to die before they went in the land. They say 40 years. That's a round-off number, by the way. See, the, the lesson here is intended to the Christians today. Visualize the, the, the people that this is being written to. We know it was written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., okay? Because the temple's not mentioned, so it's well-dated. We didn't get to that. In the earlier sessions, we talked about that. The lesson is intended for the Hebrew Christians. Their today was between the first preaching of the gospel unto Jerusalem's fall in 70 A.D. How long was that? Nominally 40 years. The same length of time that Israel wandered in the wilderness. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy 2.14, you'll discover precisely it was 38 years, not 40. 40 is a round number. It's interesting that Jesus... In his presentation in Luke 21, that's not the Olivet Discourse. It's very similar, but it's not at night on the Mount of Olives to the insiders. It's in the temple to the believers there in the temple, telling them when the armies come around, get out of town, don't let your friends return into town. This generation shall not pass till all this will be fulfilled. And the generation he's talking about is the people that were alive that heard him then. And that was 32 A.D. that he said that. It was 70 A.D. that Jerusalem fell. It was the same length of time that Israel wandered in the wilderness, 38 years. There's a precision to Christ's own prediction that's usually missed in Luke 21. Because many people presume that Luke 21 and Matthew 24 are the same presentation. They're similar, different audience, different points being made. And we have a, a, a background on that. For many years, I, I did like most people. I lumped them together. It was wrong. And uh, in recent years, we've modified that. And you, there's a briefing called This Generation. It's also covered in our Matthew, in our commentaries on those Gospels, for that matter. Well, we're wrapping it up here. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Not all that came out of Egypt. They were a blood-redeemed people. They lost their inheritance due to unbelief. Only two out of a million inherited the land, and Moses was not one of them. The people repented and God forgave their sin, but the physical consequences of their sin had to be paid. Didn't lose their salvation. They're still redeemed. How do I know that? Well, Moses was on. Moses showed up, Mount of Transfiguration. He was still saved. The water from the rock, remember that? They murmured out of distrust at Rephidim. God responded through Moses, strike the rock, and he did, and the water came. They're taken care of. Later, 38 years later, in about the same place, once again, they're without water. Once again, God says, speak to the rock. Moses was frustrated, so he struck the rock the second time. And because he did, he's out of the ballgame. He said, gee, that was a little severe. Well, he, did. he misrepresented God to the people. God wasn't angry. Moses gave him the impression that he was angry. No, he wasn't angry. Now, there's another aspect of this kind of interesting. If he'd done what God said, see, we know from 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul tells us the rock was Christ. He's speaking idiomatically, but the rock is Christ. Well, he was struck once and only once. You see, if, he, if he'd done it the way God wanted him, it would have been the first and second coming in modeling, in model. But you can study the rock all through Psalm 104, Deuteronomy 32, all through the Scripture. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit is consistent in his use of idioms throughout the thing. The rock was to be smitten once and only once, and that's why Moses discovered he's in the penalty box. Okay, buddy, you're... We'll let you see the promised land from the hill, but you're not going to enter it. Boy, wow. Some lessons there, aren't there? 
But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? The writer here is trying to put a parallel between the readers and the people that died in the wilderness. That's a little heavy, isn't it? But to them that believed not. The word is apatheo. What does that mean in the Greek? Not to allow oneself to be persuaded, to refuse or withhold belief and obedience, not to comply with. Here it's translated believe not. Elsewhere in Romans 2.8 and Romans 10.21, that same Greek word, it's translated obey not. The concept of believing and obeying is the same Greek word in several of Paul's letters. Not a conclusive point, but again and again and again, I see the parallel between the Pauline authorship. So the summary. They were a redeemed people. We know that from Exodus 14, 13, 31 and 15, 13. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. They were delivered out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They saw Pharaoh's army drown. They fed on quail and manna all through the uh, daily. But they were denied their inheritance because of unbelief. Can you lose your inheritance? That's the question. Can you lose your justification? No, Christ did it all. That's unassailable. Can you lose your inheritance? Yes, and that's exactly what the writer is concerned about. See that they could, see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Their inheritance was conditioned upon faithfulness. Our inheritance is conditioned on faithfulness. Notice they did not lose their status as a redeemed people. They did not go back to become slaves in Egypt again. No, no. They're still redeemed, the chosen people of God. Moses was at the transfiguration, etc. Nevertheless, they did lose their blessing of their inheritance, the promised land. So, the next chapter, chapter 4, we're going to explore what does he mean by entering into his rest. Were you talking about the creation rest? He rested after creating, right? Genesis 2. How about the Canaan rest? What does that mean? Or is it the Sabbath rest? What are these rests? There's different kinds of rests. Which one is he talking about? That's your assignment for next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I appreciate the fact that we're overlapping a lot. The review is rather comprehensive because I felt the continuity is crucial. But if you really understand who it was written to, and what the real burden of the writer is, setting aside whether it's Paul or whoever, um, it has a crucial message for every one of us. Many of us who are critical of the condition of the Christian body today recognize that there is a casualness um, that is unhealthy spiritually. On the one hand, on the other hand, we also have a fear, a justifiable fear, of getting into a works trip. On the other, there are those that seem to be two kinds, those that take grace casually and those that get legalistic. They got all enamored with the, the, the feasts of Israel and all that, and that's good. Then they want to start keeping the Torah, counting the 613 knots on their talits and all that. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, where's the hap what's the balance between these two? Being serious about our inheritance on the one hand, 
and not getting into a works trip. Not, don't substitute one ritual for another. That's not the point. What is the point? That's what we're going to deal next time. The rest. What are we talking about that? Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you for who you are. We thank you that you've brought us here. We thank you that we have the comfort and the confidence that our justification was complete on that cross 2,000 years ago. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us to that cross, that you have allowed us to receive the justification that was paid for at such a price on our behalf. And yet, Father, we also thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit guiding us that, that we have an inheritance that we need to apprehend. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, we might mature, we might press on to maturity, leaving the milk of the word for the strong nourishment that lies ahead for the mature believer. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, that each of us might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord, that we each might be proved more faithful, more effective as your stewards, as we seek to shed the baggage that besets us and to run with patience the race that is before us, that we too, like Paul, would seek to avoid being a castaway, but that we might be good and faithful servants. As we commit ourselves with absolutely no reservations, we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.